Uh, good evening, Wednesday night Bible study. Hope everybody's doing well. We are uh, in Paul's prison epistles, part two. Those prison epistles were written when Paul was in a house arrest in Rome, right at the end of uh, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And those epistles are Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, First uh, Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy. Those were all written during that time. So we're kind of doing a survey of those that were written there. Last week we got about halfway through Colossians, and so I'm going to pick it up from there. Uh, but let's just open in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for being with us, Lord. We thank you for those that are here or on their way. Those that are hearing by podcast, we thank you, Lord, that you minister to us and uh, uh, provoke us to thought and question and uh, response and whatever is needed here, that Holy Spirit, you as always are the, the teacher, that you illuminate the passage uh, before our eyes and uh, place it into our hearts. So, Father, we just thank you and we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Now, the first part of Colossians, what we got through last week, is basically talks about what did Christ do for us? You know, redemption, you know, the cross, what did he do? And now what we're going to be dealing with is uh, what does Christ do through us? But there's an underlining problem in the church in Colossia, which is on the map, is right here. Paul's missionary journeys is right here. Later on tonight, if we get there, we're going to be in Philippians. Philippi is up here. But Colossia is right in here. There's churches in that area. It just wasn't just one particular church. But the problem was philosophy. Because this area, it was Greek. It was under Roman rule, but the teaching was all Greek. And so that's where you get all the philosophy, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all that stuff. So when they planted churches, uh, good news, bad news. The good news is you're planting the church. The bad news is that the surrounding beliefs of the people want to come into the church. So you have to protect against that. And so, I mean, even today, we have to really look at that because the world around us could now want to tell us what we can do, what we can't do. Or they can now maybe say, well, Scripture doesn't mean that, and add their own interpretation to it. And that begins to creep in, and if we're not careful, if we don't teach theology, who God is, what God is doing, uh, then we don't know any better, and then we allow for these things. And so we shouldn't allow for these things to creep in. So, Colossians chapter 2, verse Eight. This is where we get the interjection here about philosophy coming into the, the church realm, in a sense. Colossians 2 and 8. It says, See it to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Meaning captive means this is the way it is. See, God created all things, set all things in motion, gave us his word, Gave us, you know, pointed us to Christ. Christ came, you know, all of that. God sets all that up. And then now philosophy wants to come in and take people captive through their thought by saying, no, it's this way. We can figure it out. We can do this. We can do that. It's not that way. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive 
through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now remember, when it says Christ, it just doesn't mean Jesus on the cross. It means Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. You know, uh, verse 9, it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily forms. In other words, what I just said, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is all there. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Marcia. Hi. Come on in. Hi. And, uh, so, so the fullness, the fullness of God is in, is in Christ, in, uh, in, uh, deity form. Then verse 10 it says, And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Now, when we were talking about Ephesians a couple weeks ago, we talk, Ephesians talks about how uh, we as believers are the body. The Colossians says, okay, but Christ is the head of the body. So in other words, the body follows the head. And that's what he's saying here. But his main warning is, you know, be free from philosophy. These things can take you and pull you away from, from, from what you know, scripturally. And so uh, it's very important that you... Uh, um, maintain um, good theological understanding there. So then, the rest of it just kind of explains that a little bit more. But in just an overviewing this, in Colossians chapter 3, it now talks about the position of the believer. And this is going to be in Philippians as, as well when we get there. That in other words, as a Christian, as a believer... God points us in a direction. God positions us. And what is that position? In other words, what should we be sharing? What should we be doing? How should we be acting? What is the response of the believer to the word? As I always say, that what is, what is the Bible? It's theology. Who is God? What is God doing? And now what is my position in relationship to what God has said and what God is doing? How do I now respond to that? How am I supposed to do that? And so the New Testament does this very well for, the, for us. It positions us to now understand um, uh, uh, what God is doing and, and, and what it means to the church and how the church should be responding in all of this. So uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4 says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Talking about resurrection here. But the position of the believer, verse 1 again in chapter 3, if then you have been raised up with Christ. Notice this is future tense. So in order with God, where is God? God is, you know, same yesterday, today, and forever. He's present here, but God is also in the future. And so our future is already set in Christ. We are already raised up, even though we're living out our, our span 
uh, we are already raised up with him. So he says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. So in other words, it's changing our position as believers or as, as humans. Instead of, because he was talking about in verse 2, don't let no one take you captive by vain philosophy and, and the teachings of men. He says, set your things above. And so the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit is the word of God. So therefore it comes from above. And as we study the word of God, as we seek the word of God, as we reposition to the word of God, we are seeking the things of, of above us, which is where God is. Okay. Uh, thoughts, questions on that? It's just kind of a, a position. This is who we are, and then it goes into this 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 uh, new position here. We'll look at the old position first, chapter three, verse five. It says, "Therefore, in other words, therefore, since we're we're raised up with Christ, since we're changed, since we're now repositioned, this is what we have to do. This is our part here." Verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside. So we are to put those things aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have been put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So in other words, part of repentance is we have to walk away from the old manner of life. We have to reposition ourselves. We have to move away from that. That's why when you preach the gospel, repentance is extremely important because if we don't preach repentance, then somebody thinks they can just continue to do what they were doing. No, you have to lay that aside. And it's the idea of the language here is if you had a garment on, you take it off. The garment doesn't take itself off. We have to take it off. We we do that. We get rid of it. So then it trans, transfers into the new position that we have here, verse 12. It says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, now here's the language again, put on, my responsibility. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Reading verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. This is now the new position. This is the new man. Again, this relates to baptism. Baptism is what? You're laying down the old person, and the idea is coming out of the water is the new creation. So it's symbolic of what's going on. That's why, chase a rabbit real quick, that when someone makes a confession of Christ as Lord and Savior, you really don't want to go to baptism right away. You want to now say, uh, you want to indoctrinate them. You want to now begin to disciple them so they understand what is going on. And that's the way you know, church used to do it years and years ago. If you made a confession of Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you went through discipleship training. And then when the discipleship training was over, then you came before the congregation and you were presented to the congregation and the congregation could ask, literally ask you questions about your faith. And the reason was because now you're going to be accepted into that congregation as a voting, active, participating member and they wanted to make sure that everybody's on the same page. As opposed to, how many in here are Christians? Oh, we are, yeah, we're all good and you really don't know. You really don't know. And so that's why, as a, as a pastor, before I baptize anybody, I make sure uh, that they know, that I know that they know. And if they don't, then we go through, you know, what, what they need to go through uh, in order to uh, receive bap- uh, believer's baptism. So that's a little off the pages there. But the point is, there's a new creation, and we should position ourselves to what God is saying. Yeah? That was, that was a bit of a double-edged sword unfortunately right because could be yes because you know you go through this discipleship program but who's teaching it and you know what happened was a backlash of being basically like indoctrinated if you will but you know with wrong theology wrong beliefs you know legalism legalism and all that and that's not i don't think was that anything is that was that any different from biblical times no that's why every gospel and epistle teaches about false teaching and warns us not to let it in and, and really labors the point about, uh, uh, you know, being Christ-centered. Because if we don't, that stuff comes in and it's like, you know, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, did you get saved this way? Why are you teaching it a different way now? You got saved this way by the Spirit. Now you're teaching it by works. Who's bewitched you? So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's always been a problem. And this is why Paul, on his journeys... You know, and he's going up through all these places, and he's teaching and placing elders. And if you read in a lot of the epistles, he says, and then I'm going to send Barnabas to you, or I'm going to send Timothy to you, or I'm going to return to you, I'm going to send somebody to make sure that uh, they have somebody there who's a strong teacher, that can answer questions, who can um, is strong enough to refute what somebody else is saying. Because a lot of times, if you're not, to Diego's point, if you're not strong enough in Scripture to refute what someone is saying, then what happens? Somebody's got to be the authority in the room. Right? Somebody's got to be, and the authority is really the Word of God, but that person has to stay on the on the pages. So that's, that's the authority in the room, is the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, it's, it's in... This is why when you study church history, you see the church being strong 
and people getting saved, and then you just see it drop off, and the, and the church being cold, and nothing happened, and then all of a sudden there, there, there becomes a revival of teaching and, and, and evangelism, and churches on fire again, and, and, and it's growing, and then it drops off again, and you know, this has happened throughout the history of the, of, of the church. And right now we're kind of in that, you know, I'm hoping as an optimistic we're on the upswing, you know, that we're not going to go any farther down. There are signs that we are starting to make a curve, but since the uh, since the '60s, you know, the the church has has really uh, uh, shrunk, and theology has really taken a, a back seat. Once upon a time, the most honored degree that you could get was a theology degree. Way back when, that was um, what was it? I don't want to misquote it. A uh, couple things, you know, all the universities on the East Coast and even some in the Midwest, they all started as theological universities: Princeton, yeah. Yale, Harvard, all of them. Uh, um, you know, and that, that was what you obtained to. But from the Age of Enlightenment, which started in the 1400s and you know came over here in the, in the 16, 17, 1800s, then philosophy and science and this other stuff begin to creep up and now a theology degree wasn't looked upon as the highest but it was the church that established schools in this nation and so um, what happened and hospitals yeah well you know one thing that you bring to mind when i was a young woman young girl we used to have evangelistic services and we would occasionally, like once a year, we would bring an evangelist to the church. And of course, we had Billy Graham, which was who was just fantastic. And maybe it's time to start doing that again. That's what I've been kind of talking about. In in you know, in you know, in the last few sermons, you know, I've, I've been talking about, you know, we're going to get back to doing even with with this COVID thing. We have to get back to doing what the church did that caused it to grow. And what caused it to grow was evangelism. And when you look at, we have a library here, and we have uh, history books of, of, of the things that went on in the church. And one of the things that struck me when I first came here and I looked at it was how often they had evangelism events, big events, yeah. big events, not just once a year, it was all the time. And so, you know, hello, yeah. So again, so, so when those things stop, what's going to happen to the church? But we're seeing it. Yeah, we're seeing it. So we're 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 receptors of that. So now it's up to us to begin that process of changing that curve back. So yeah, that's why I make a point to say that whenever I do a sermon, you're going to hear the gospel because that's the central thing to Scripture is the gospel. And when we start making it about ourselves and about what I can get and this and that, then now the gospel takes a back seat. And what, what's first and foremost? Now it's about me. No, it's about God and what God did for me. So, any other questions on that? Good, good, good stuff. Uh, just one last little thing there on Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Again, talking about the position of the believer, because Colossians is Christ is the head. He's telling the believer what you should be doing. 
chapter 4, verse 2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up for us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been in prison. In other words, the gospel, right? Uh, in order that I may speak in clear, speak it clear in the way I ought to speak. And then it says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasons as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Again, this is the position of the believer. We should be, uh, um, um, you know, presenting ourselves, you know, a particular way. Always be on alert with the idea that we could um, um, uh, share the gospel. And how would we share the gospel? How could we share the gospel? But it opens up with devote yourself to prayer. You know, pray for revival. Pray for souls. Pray. Uh, Keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving that God is going to uh, do this. You know, so... That there is kind of in a nutshell is, is Colossians. It's basically the problem is philosophy creeping into the church. And, and Paul writes a letter and says, don't let this take you captive. Uh, turn away from it. And as a believer, this is what you should be doing. Okay? So that's Colossians. Now we're going to go to Diego's favorite epistle. <laughs> yes. Yes. He did teach you on this. Um, um, not too long ago, huh? Yeah, ministry. Gosh, it was one of the first men's ministries. Yeah, it was like a few months ago, maybe? Yeah. So, Philemon is that page that's stuck to either the first page of Hebrews or the, or the last page of Titus. It's right in there in between. And it's an interesting little passage and it's it's just 25 verses long that's it yeah and and it's is but there's 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 a lot of stuff in here and the overview is there's a fellow by the name of Philemon he's a believer and uh well you know what let's, let's just read it and uh, verse 1 it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. So right there we find out he's a Christian, right? Fellow worker, he's active in the, in the gospel. And, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So remember I'm always telling you, where, where did, is the church meeting? They're meeting in homes. You know, there, there's no big buildings here yet. It says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. You know, their knowledge, we are supposed to know. The only way to know is to read and to, you know what God is saying. Verse 7, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brothers. So this 
Bill Mon, he's done a good work. He's he's encouraged and he's been preaching and, and teaching and, and Paul's commending him, right? Okay. So now here comes the, the issue. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. In other words, he's saying, you know, Paul said, is my position as a, as a, as a the preeminent apostle, I could order you to do something, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. He says, yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In other words, he says, I'm not the young Paul who maybe had a short fuse. I'm now the older Paul who's a little more seasoned, but also I'm under house arrest, so I can't really come knocking on your door here. And then he says, verse 2, I appeal to you for my child. Now, he's saying my child. In other words, this means someone that's close to him. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's his own flesh and blood, but it's someone that, that he has nurtured. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, and his name is Onsimus. So that during his imprisonment, Paul's still preaching the gospel. People are still getting saved around him. And here's his fellow, Onsimus. Verse 11, who formerly was useless to you, but now he is both useful to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the word. What he's saying there is this Onsimus once was a worker, was a slave, a bondservant for Philemon. And then now he now left, escaped, whatever it was. And, you know, he, he wasn't saved then, but now he's saved. And Paul says, you know, I love this guy. I, I want to keep him with me. Uh, there, there, there's a lot he could do here. But he owes you a debit. He owes you something. He was, you know, a bondservant. And again, bondservants back in those days, is you agreed to work for somebody for a period of time. For whatever it was. There was a lot of different reasons you could do it. But you have to fulfill the obligation. You know, it's like you buy a car. You got to fulfill the obligation. You got to make your payments. You can't just say, okay, well, I took possession of the car and I don't have to make payments. No, you got to make payments. You got to fulfill your, your obligation. So verse 17 says, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Because you got to figure, Philmon's probably a little ticked with this guy, right? He left, and you know, and 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 uh, now now he's saved. He's in a different position. So Paul is doing something here that should really respond to all of us, because you know sometimes we have those people that are around us that maybe they weren't so nice once upon a time, and then they get saved, and then now it's like, okay, how should we treat them? Well, Paul knows better than anybody. Back when he was called Saul. When he was persecuting the church. And he got saved. He wanted to be accepted, right? So he knows about this. So verse 18. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, 
Charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Lest, <laughs> notice this. He says, I will repay it. And then he says, lest I should mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. So he says, I'll repay it, but don't forget, I taught you too. You know, don't, don't forget, you know. <laughs> so, verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at that same time, I also also prepare me a lodging. For I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Uh, it says, Raphael, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as does Mark and uh, some of the others. So he's writing this from Rome, but he wants to, he's, he's anticipating one day he's going to be vindicated and he's going to get out of Rome. And he says, prepare a place for me because I'm going to go back there. So obviously there's a relationship there is very strong. But here he's asking him to accept this Onsimon's back, you know, in, in that he's wronged him. And so he appeals to him. So, Diego, what do you got to say? Well, I mean, um, the one thing I'll highlight is that uh, in verse 19, when it says, Paul, I am writing to you with my own hand, it, it, it emphasizes the significance of the, of the plea. Because uh, Paul he used to have a scribe. He would have somebody writing for yes, him, right? Yes, exactly. And so when, when he got to the part, to the actual plea, he takes the pen and actually writes it himself to emphasize mm -hmm. the importance of the plea. Yeah. You know, so, um, because again, to your point, what he said, you know, he, he's been there, he, he, he's mm -hmm. been rejected, he, he knows what it's mm -hmm. like to be saved mm -hmm. and try to fit in, you know, what I mean, fit in, in the, the realm of things and be on the wrong side of an action and all that. So he understands all that. So him writing it himself highlights how much he understands that, he empathizes mm -hmm. with that. And he's trying to uh, portray that message, he's trying to give that message to, to, um, to Philemon, he's trying to tell him, "Hey, look, this is how important I think this is." Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, mm -hmm. that that was, I think, the the main thing out of the whole thing that I that one of the main things. Uh, everything else is, you know, I, not to plug in my own lesson, but it's there because <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it was a really neat study. For those of you that haven't studied, it's a really neat study, and that was a really good one. It's like, and Paul doesn't do that a whole lot in the Bible. He doesn't do a whole lot. He, he very, if you notice, he very rarely takes the pencil and pen himself and writes. Mm -hmm. So he did it this time. Mm -hmm. In a in a book that's twenty five verses, he did it there, so mm -hmm. it should it should highlight how 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 he values these sort of these sorts of things. So. Yeah, yeah, it's almost kind of like a uh, it's a note from from brother to brother that have a strong relationship, and you know he said I don't have to go into all this theological stuff with you because I know you know it, mm -hmm. and it's just but here's the circumstances and this is who this guy is this is how he treated me and you and I we have history and we know so you know if he's done this with me I'm sure when he comes back he's going to do it with you because now he's changed you know and so again you think about that in terms of what we just read in Colossians about take, putting off the old self putting on the new self now here's, here's a guy that's, that's done this yeah he might have been a scoundrel way back then but he's taken off those filthy garments and he's put on the new. So, you know, accept him back. Thoughts, questions on that? I yeah. think if I were in Philemon's shoes, <laughs> <laughs> I'd feel awfully guilty if I didn't take him back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, but Paul lays it on thick. He lays it on yeah, thick. Yeah, he lays it on very thick. He, he lays it thick. on thick, but... 
you know, that's what that's to Paul's credit, he doesn't assume that his brother Philemon really gets this particular part of his walk because this is now personal. It's different when you're teaching others. You know, this is what God says, God says, but now this is personal. This is something that hurt him personally, and he might have a grudge, and so now he's got a. Okay. So that's why Paul takes on himself. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he just totally, he totally disarmed him. Yeah, that's why Paul took defense on himself. He's like, look, look, I get it. You get it. You're, you're upset. Yeah. He wronged you. I get it. You know. Yeah. And and um, and you know, he he laid it on thick in the beginning, right? Like, pray to you. You know, yeah. I always pray for you. Like, mm. yeah, he, he set him up like, uh, it's masterful, really. <laughs> you know, and um, yeah. And so uh, it's just it's just they an interesting. Think, it's really a powerful twenty five verses. It is, and I mean, just think in twenty five verses, all the stuff you can pull out of this. I mean, you could really preach uh, uh, quite a bit out of this. So, any other thoughts or questions on that? Because it's pretty straightforward, but it's it's really really powerful. So, also uh, on the men's ministry thing, Diego, I think it's your first two men's ministry things. He does this chapter. They were both recorded, weren't they? Yeah, both are recorded. Yeah. I did, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was in two parts. Yeah, I didn't think. I mean, I, twenty-five verses in two parts. I don't know. I really went. Yeah, through. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it was really awesome. There's a lot of meat awesome. there. So yeah. if you want to get a little more meat on there, just go to that podcast, and it's there. So let's go back to Philippians and see if we can get through this. If not, we can pick it up next week. No problem. Philippians, again, another prison epistle. The other ones he's written in like the year 60, 61. This one he writes in the year probably 62. Uh, And it's kind of a thank you letter on one hand because the church in Philippi, again, which is up here, uh, took an offering for him a couple times and even in his house arrest uh, ministered to his needs. And his journeys along the way, they were uh, had a great affection for Paul and Paul for them, and uh, uh, they had uh, um, helped him, you know, in different times of need. Uh, but one of the things he comes up with here, he says that only in Christ can you have real joy. Now remember, you know, our Advent Sunday was joy, and we're talking about Advent. You know, it's Christ that brings joy. Yeah. Only in Christ can you experience true joy. True, everlasting joy through Christ. And the problem in this particular church is that some of the brethren are starting to fight among themselves. And uh, uh, we're going to kind of get to it in a second. They're kind of grumbling with one another. There's not a, a church split or anything here. But there's probably some personality conflicts. There's probably some ego stuff going on. So Paul's going to address that. Because think about it for, for a second. Any church anywhere, even, even this group right here, because we're technically we're a church. We're, we're, we're called out together. It doesn't make any sense, other than her and I, that we know each other. Uh, um, you know, because we, we didn't grow up in the same places. Our, our stories are different. But we're in this room because God called us, right? That's the commonality. So now God's called different people in the room with different backgrounds, different ways of seeing things, 
And now, if you think that's not going to cause a little bit of tension at some point, yeah, it will. Because people have different customs, right? They have different ways of doing things. And it's, okay, how do you now address that? How do you now address when someone says, well, if you're going to praise God, the only way you can do it is like this. And somebody else says, no, if I'm just sitting down and my eyes are closed and I'm meditating on God, I'm praising just as well as you are. You've got two different things. And if we're not careful, we could butt heads on that. Okay, so this is what's being addressed here. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6 to 11. is Paul's basically, it's a prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It says, in the middle of it, he says, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing. Why is he confident? Because he knows them. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, you know what? Stop there. Go to chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1 to 4, because chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, actually kind of highlights the problem. And then I'll go back to verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit and any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, and here's a problem, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So this is a problem here. He's saying, don't try and be first, be last. Humble yourself. Okay. So with that thought in mind, go back to chapter 1. Because as he's writing this, he knows the problem. So chapter 1, verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, right? He who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Okay, we receive the gospel you know, by grace, salvation by grace. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's his prayer in a sense but he's writing to them, and it's kind of like what Diego said about in Philemon. Paul sets them up real good. So he knows the problem here. He says, I'm confident that God's going to complete a work in you. And he's basically saying, okay, there's some things going here, but going on here, it's because you're not a finished product yet. There's still work to be done here. There's still things that you're going to have to go through, but I'm confident you're going to be able to go through it. Now, drop down to verse 21. Because what's going on in between is Paul talking about the afflictions he's gone through in order to, to, to preach the gospel and stuff like that, things that we've, 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 we've gone on. Well, actually, 
Let's go ahead and do verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Again, what is the New Testament about? What is the church about? The gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, which is the gospel, has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. You know, Praetorian Guard was the governor of Rome's guard. So he said, so all the Romans are finding out that they're getting the gospel. You know, and all this. And we just read in Philemon how Onsimons was a prisoner over there and he got saved. Right? Verse 14. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. Now notice, some for sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from good will. So he knows that there's a, there's a lot of things going on here. Because don't forget, they're living in, in a world that doesn't like Christianity. And it's causing tension all around. And they're new to Christianity. Uh, Christianity is new to them. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a mix of things going on here. Verse 16, And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of self-ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He says, you know, even though people aren't doing it exactly right and their motives aren't quite right, you know, the word is getting out there. Christ is getting out there. You know, this is not the perfect thing, you know, what he's saying. He's not making a, a statement here that says, uh, it's okay if they really don't know what they're preaching. But what, again, he's talking to a church that he knows, the church where they've been saved, but people now that are maybe preaching out of selfish ambition. They're maybe uh, thinking more of themselves than they should. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to finish up. I was gonna... No, no, go ahead. No, I was actually going to ask, so does that mean, is, is he... Is he basically saying, like, so how, how are we to react on, on say, other churches? I'm not trying to pick on anybody or anything. Yeah, I, 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 I get it. But you know where I'm going, right? Yeah. That, that are preaching, preaching a loosey-goosey gospel. Are we supposed to just be happy then? Take it a while. It's better than nothing? or? Because don't forget, what did he say? Verse 6, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. At what cost, though? Yeah, so he's, he's, saying that, he's, he's saying that even though they might be their motives might be a little off a little bit. I'm confident that God is going to ground you. Now, for example, me as a pastor, I went through a lot of stuff, and I remember teaching stuff way back when that I think about it now, and I just cringe because I was a product of whatever that was. And so, you know, it was the grace of God that allowed me to to uh, uh, continue to seek God and, 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 and my theology changed. My love for God was still there, but the way I approach God is now different than the way I approach God then. It was more of an external, it was more of a, a humanistic approach, 
rather, whereas now it's more, it's done in, in humility, knowing who God is in my position <coughs> towards God. I don't, I don't, it's, it's not, it's not God in me. It's, it's, it's God in me <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So, you know, again, you have to kind of filter it through. I'm confident that he who began a good work and you will complete it, you know. And so it's not a best case scenario. But again, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with a young church, an early church uh, that hopefully is going to uh, reform itself. And it also gives way for the church to have. We have to learn. Again, it's, it's my thing with, with Pisa. What is Pisa all about? Well, why are we leaning? We've got to correct that lean. And how are we going to correct that lean if we don't look at what we're doing wrong? You know? We're still the, still the body, but we have to at some point apply a, 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 a correction there. So, look, continue reading. I think it gets into it a little bit more here. Uh, let's see, verse 21. It says, For to me, to live in Christ and to die is gain. But if I am... To live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, but I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And I am convinced of this, that I know that I shall remain and continue with you after all your progress and joy in the Lord." so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my own coming to you again. So he says, you know, really, I would rather just go be with the Lord. He says, but at the same time, my love for you and the love for the gospel and, and doing what I'm doing, you know, I, I'm going to stay here. And I'm writing you this letter and I'm going to continue to preach and I hope to go come back to you so that all these issues and these things, we can find a way to resolve them. You know, because back to Diego's point that if you look at Christianity, and that was my little chart here last week that I I took off. <laughs> I erased, but I got to, I want to put it back. If this is the plumb line of God here, and this is where Scripture is at, and this is what we should be teaching, when we start teaching out here, you know, it might have a little semblance of orthodoxy, but it's still out here. And then it branches off over to here. And this branches off, and that branches off of that, and that branches off of that, off of that, off of that, off of that. And then eventually, it just starts over here, and it's not even connected at all. This has a possibility of correcting itself by coming back. Right? This has no hope because it never started. That's that's the danger. So that's what we have to look at. I'm confident that God will com complete the work that he started in you. If you start to stray away from this, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that he will bring you back. But avoid those that are out here. Because they, they don't have any anything. There's, a, there's nothing for them to come back to. So looking at Christianity... You know, as a whole, that if this is all Christianity, we have churches that are Orthodox, but then we have some that are out here. 
and that was our conversation, I think, with Larry and Juicy at the end of last week's thing. Somehow we got on a conversation about Worldwide Church of God, which at one time was looked upon as a cult, and it was uh, Armstrong, George Armstrong, not George Armstrong. Armstrong was the last name of the pastor. But he, it was Worldwide Church of God, and it was looked upon as a cult because it was not, they were not orthodox in their teaching. But it was a worldwide thing, and he was on TV, and he was well-known, and they had churches in Europe and whatever. They, I think they had uh, close to 3,000, 3, 3 million members. And then what happened was, when he died, the elders of the church now began to look and begin to want to regroup uh, what they were doing, and at some point there were some of them were thinking, well, you know, I think some of the teaching that you know Brother Armstrong was doing was off, and some were saying no, it was right. Well, a group of about five of them, and I got this story from the president of uh, of Fuller because I was going to Fuller at the time on my master's, and he was teaching a class, and so he was relating the story to the class that. Fuller's doctrine statement said, the only ones that can come to Fuller are people that confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all the orthodox things. But then you had these five guys from the Worldwide Church of God wanted to come to Fuller. And now the president had to make a decision. Do I let these guys come in who I think are heretics come in and possibly do damage? Or do I allow them to come in and allow the Holy Spirit to change their heart? So he allowed them in. And so they went through their uh, demon process, which was about three years. And when they were done, they took all that teaching that they got, which now took them right back to orthodoxy. All that teaching that they got out of Florida brought them back to orthodoxy. And they now took that to the elders of the church and said, look it, this is where we're supposed to be. All this other stuff was wrong. They had meetings, they had meetings, they had a whatever, and a lot of people got upset and they left, but the bottom line was they reformed that denomination to Orthodox. Probably more than half of the people left, but the point is they brought it back to Orthodoxy because they were willing to look at Scripture, and then they were willing to do what it says in here to humble yourselves and you know all That's that other stuff. So. You can do that on a, on a big level. But <laughs> yeah, that's, what what saying. Saying. <laughs> that's not what I heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but um, there's been a couple others that do that. But normally, what happens is once it's it's out here, it doesn't it doesn't come back in. You know, it's just, it takes a a real move of of God. Where they're at right now, I have no idea. But that was. I heard this story back in 98, maybe, and I think they graduated in 92, something like that. So, anyway, um, verse 27, it says, only conduct yourselves in a manner, again, this is going back to, to um, Colossians, our position, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith 
of the gospel. You know, it's like what he said to Ephesians, one God, one baptism, one heart, one unity. What was happening is that they were starting to break up and that unity was starting to go away. And he says, come back, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Right? Um, so, chapter 2, verse 5. Now he goes into showing them how to do it. How to correct what they're doing wrong. Chapter 2, verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is he doing? Orthodox. He says, this is what Christ did. Look at what he did. Remember what he did. Do what he did. What are we supposed to do? Um, You know, follow Christ. Be as Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard Equality with God is something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is Jesus coming as the humble servant. You know, at the time of messianic fever, you know, when they thought Messiah was coming, they wanted the conquering king. And so a lot of them were a little upset with this idea of a, of, of a Messiah who comes, you know, in, in our humility, comes to serve. Uh, and again, verse 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. In other words, think of somebody else first before you, right? But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own in personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Ouch, slam dunk, right? He says, do this. Don't put yourself first. Put others first. Be humble. Remember, Christ, who was in the form of God the Father, humbled himself to come to earth. And be in that capacity to where, uh, you know, allowed himself to be put on a cross. Allowed himself to go through all of that. Uh, Let's see. Verse 9. Therefore... Also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and those on earth and under earth. Now notice that context of that. We, we hear that all the time. But the context is you have to humble yourself because realize what Christ did. God humbled himself more than anybody has ever humbled uh, you know, to, to come and save us. So therefore, why would we walk around acting like we're more important than somebody else and not putting others first? Because again, God did what? He so loved the world that he gave. You know, he gave himself, uh, you know, coming, you know, uh, uh, in bodily form. Verse 10, And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Christ's example of of humility, but what does it do for the church? It levels the playing field. So no matter what we do in the church, 
whether we're a new believer or an old believer, if we're preaching and teaching or administrating or we're greeting people at the door or we're, we're working the projector or we're setting things up or we're taking the trash out, the, the, the playing field is level. Nobody, nobody has a, a greater, uh, a, a bigger hat here, so nobody should have a bigger head uh, in all of this because we're all part of one body and the body supports itself, one another. We all work together. And we have to have that humility of mind and heart. And uh, sometimes that doesn't always happen uh, in the church. The rest of this particular passage is all about is different examples of humility. So as you read chapter 2, the rest of it, it's just more examples of humility. So chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Paul says that I may know him, meaning God, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or that I have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lays behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if there was anybody that could say in the New Testament, hey, I, I got this thing figured out, it would be Paul. You know, and, and, and Paul takes pains not to go to his resume. He, he basically only does it once or twice, only because he has to. And one of the times we'll get to next week. But he says, not that I've already made it, not that I've already attained it, but I keep I keep pressing on. Because there's more to know. There's more to, to understand. Uh, that's where I like the demonstration of the kippah, the yarmulke that the Jews wear. The reason they do that is because it's to it's supposed to be a reminder that man or humanity cannot approach God. In other words, that God is so far above us uh, that they wear that to remind themselves that they cannot approach um, God. Doesn't mean we can't follow God, but that they they can't be as God, and so it's a reminder there. So, you know, not that I've already obtained it, but I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. Jesus, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid a hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lays behind, and move forward. So again, you know, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have things. Forget what was behind. Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep our eyes on, on Christ. Keep our eyes fixed on the... On the prize, as it says in uh, uh, here, and it says in uh, in Hebrews. Uh, let's see, I can finish this real quick here. Philippians chapter four, verse six. Famous passage of scripture. We all know this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence of anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard, in other words, from him, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Because again, remember what's happening. They're infighting with one another. Be humble in all these things. And in again, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer supplication. Thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You know, don't worry about it. God's in control. Let the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. If we're focused on Christ, there's a lot of things that we don't worry about anymore. You know, it's, you know those little things that people want to gossip about or want to make an issue about or something. It's like, there's really nothing there to that. You know, keep your eyes fixed on, on God. God is the one who is going to uh, take care of all these things. And... Uh, last little thing here in verse 13, and I'll take some questions. Verse 13 says, And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now notice, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So in other words, I can humble myself. And so can you. You know, you guys are, you guys are fighting among yourselves, he's saying to the church. He says, I can do all things. I can humble myself. Because not that I've made it, not that I've already obtained it, but I keep pressing on. I keep pressing into the Word of God because I haven't made it yet because I cannot approach who God is. I can do all things to Him who strengthens me. Verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now this is where he's going to be He's thanking them for the gifts and things that they've given him. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at, first, that at the first preaching of the gospel... After I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. That's in Acts chapter 17, verse, now verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Eraphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now notice, that's a well-used verse, but notice in the context of what it's done. Uh, that, you know, that church supplied his needs when he needed needed it. Not everybody responded to his needs, but this particular church did. And he says, you know, God shall supply, you know, all of your needs according to his riches and glory, the way he's going to do it, how he's going to do it, through whom he's going to do it. And so, uh, one other thing that I want to point out there that I didn't, in verse 10, it says that you may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is a word, koinonia, and it means a partnership, a spiritual partnership. So in other words, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You know, the power of his resurrection is what turns us all into immortality with him. 
and the fellowship, in other words, the partnership, the spiritual fellowship, that I may know the spiritual fellowship, this connection that we have with God, that I may know it. It's his kononia, it's a spiritual fellowship of his sufferings. So in other words, you know, the church is going to go through things and realize we go through things, but Christ went through things. And so we have to be partakers of that as well and know that if there's going to be ups and downs and stuff like that, there's no reason for divisions, there's no reason for fighting, there's this and that. Let's all humble ourselves, let's put the other person first, and we can all move forward. And so um, that's Philippians. And basically he's saying you can do all things through Christ. But the only way you can do all things through Christ is you have to be in Christ and Christ in you and do things the way Christ has called them to do. Too many times we want to be outside of the Word of God and want God to now move to where we're at and co-sign to what we want to do. And it doesn't work like that. So, you know, we, you know we, we go through Christ, who Christ is. We don't now take Christ and say, okay, over here, God. No, we go through Christ where God is at. Right? So, thoughts, questions, comments? There's no persimmons, so you can't throw anything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we good so that's his letter there to Philippians um, so again you know again when you when you go back and you read these things remember there's, there's little things in the church that are always going to be there that cause dissension cause that and it's how you approach them you're always going to have them so but it's how do you approach them how do you fix them how do you now keep things from going because when you study church history you find out that for the first 1,400 years of the church, there was only two main groups in Christianity, East and West. The West was the European church. The East was the Greek Orthodox thing. And they kind of split in about the year 900, almost the year 1,000. But those were the two main thoughts. You didn't have denominations. It's not until the 1500s that you begin to get denominations, and then all of a sudden uh, you go from. I have a. Uh, I'm showing church history. It's kind of it kind of looks like this. Church age starts right here, and then you have this. This is the church, and then all of a sudden it just goes like this. And that now you have all these different options. Christianity, all these different things to where now you probably have nobody's actually I don't think you ever come up with a really good count of it, but you have somewhere in the vicinity of twenty thousand to thirty thousand different distinct groups of, in Christianity. And they're not all on the plumb line of God. So, but they call themselves Christian. So now when you filter that through this, now you know why he said this. Because we got to get back on. So next week we're going to do First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. They're all pretty much the same. They're pastoral epistles. 
And so we can, we can kind of get through that, and then we'll break for Christmas and come back with Romans in the beginning of the year. But next week, we'll do those. So uh, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just give you honor and praise and glory. We just thank you again for this time. Lord, thank you for understanding. But Lord, also application. Lord, we desire to apply the Word of God in our lives and into our church family, Lord. So Father, we just pray, Lord, for salvations. We pray that the Word of God would go forth in our communities, Lord, uh, with strength and vigor and vitality, uh, and that your Word would not return void, Lord. But your word would uh, impact communities and lives and people would be changed uh, forevermore from darkness into light. And so, Father, we just give you praise. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you all next week or Sunday.